Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. We have with us here today, David Nabarro. Now, David is one of those extraordinary individuals who has spent his professional life both redesigning the present and reimagining the future, one that's healthy, sustainable, and inclusive of all humanity. As one of the framers of the UN Global Goals, he has one word to describe how we can unlock those global goals and advance the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and Climate Change. And that one word is love. In our interview, he speaks to the human heart, which he, along with notable others like E.O. Wilson, believes is hardwired for altruism. We want the best for those on the planet today and those who have yet to arrive tomorrow. If we are, as Rumi says, not just drops in the ocean, but the entire ocean in a drop, then let's go make some waves and transform this world. Let's hear what David has to say. We are here with our guest, David Nabarro, who is the director of 4SD, Skills, Systems, and Synergies for Sustainable Development. David is also the professor of global health at Imperial College in London. He's most known, although, for his special advisement to three secretary generals of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon, and Antonio Guterres. He was one of the significant framers of the Sustainable Development Goals, what we call the 17 SDGs. And we are just very happy to have you with us, David. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be with you, Catherine. So, as we are here at the annual meeting, and the theme of the meeting is Globalization 4.0, how can this new globalization shaping of the architecture for the fourth industrial revolution, how can this be inclusive, multinational, global, and essentially a new paradigm for a new world? After today's press conference, one of the major themes that came out of the press conference was that we're really looking at not repairing or iterating a system that exists, but actually reimagining a new system. So can you share with us your thoughts on what that reimagined system might look like and who needs to be involved in that process? Thanks very much, Catherine. You know, when we look ahead to the future and imagine the future, we're not completely without clues as to which way to go. That's because in September 2015, as you mentioned in your introduction, world leaders came out with what they called the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. That's a plan for the future of our world and her people that was agreed by all 193 nations through their leaders and that was laid before the world. It took three years to develop. It involved consultations with more than 8 million people. It involved hundreds of meetings in countries, in regions and internationally. And it is a remarkable, remarkable piece of work. Why am I going on about it? Because I think it's really hard to imagine the future of our world without having some kind of plan to serve as a compass. Because we don't have a spare world. This is our only world. And we also don't have another plan. 
there's no other agreed international plan for the future. This is the plan, and just let me describe it in a few words. It starts by saying people should be front and centre of our planning, with nobody left behind, no individual, no community, no ethnic group, no sex, no nation left behind. Secondly, it says that the future must be viewed as interconnected, as a system. And that interconnected system brings together everything on which we depend, also everything on which our Earth depends for the future. Thirdly, it's universal. It applies equally to people wherever they live. Fourthly, it should be associated with integrated action that doesn't divide services up into different categories, that doesn't differentiate between the work of governments and the work of others, that doesn't say, well, security should be done by one group of people and human rights should be looked after by another group of people, oh, and humanitarian action belongs somewhere else. It requires integration. And most important, it needs partnering. We need to work together. So those five things of people-centred, interconnected systems, universal, requiring integrated responses and partnering to make it happen, are the principles that surround this new plan. And then the plan itself has 17 goals and 169 targets to show us where we need to go. Now, to make that plan come to life is what's been the business of all the world's nations, multiple businesses, many civil society groups, trades unions, schools and universities. It's become a really important uniting influence for everybody. But as you implied at the beginning, to imagine the system of governance and organisation that will lead this plan to come to life is quite tricky because it really does require a mindset which is different from what most of us were brought up with in our lives and that's really my personal focus for the future but I sense it as the focus for many hundreds of thousands of people who are working on the future right now. And so two of the shapers who were today talking in the press conference, my response is, yes, things are not right at the moment, but we have a really good basis from which to be working, and we have many, many people, committed people, who are saying, what do we need to do now to make that plan come to life? I'm not one of these people who believes that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and then perhaps by some magical force leaders will come together and say action is needed and they behave differently. Although I have seen situations where a particular problem can lead to governments taking action that is quite exceptional and I'm aware that that potential is there I believe that when it comes to planning for the future that actually what we need to understand is that things are happening 
now. Don't for a minute let us imagine that issues like climate change are somehow in the future. I have worked with people and nations that are already suffering in some pretty awful ways as a result of changing climate. It is just there. The frequency of droughts in some parts of the world, the unusual water currents in other parts of the world, the salination of deltas leading to change in agriculture, the extreme heat that has been associated even very recently with summer months in different geographies. These are with us. And they are affecting millions of people. So climate change is happening now. It doesn't lead to some dramatic collapse of society, but it does lead to life being increasingly difficult, particularly for poor people, and that in turn means that they cannot earn their livelihoods where they are right now. And pressures to move into towns or sometimes even across national borders are increasing. So yes, collapse is happening in some places, but at the same time there are other places where there is a real recognition that new ways of thinking and working are necessary. And so out of what is happening right now we do see natural experiments at applying new mindsets and reimagining the future and then when people tell us that this is increasingly urgent, perhaps that leads to a little bit more energy, and that is a very good thing. Now, last point, Catherine, is to say, actually, things are urgent. The challenges being faced, particularly in relation to climate, need to be dealt with quickly. But also, if we look at the statistics, in general, inhabitants of our world are wealthier, living longer, living better than they were 30 or 40 years ago. So it's not all gloom and doom. It does feel as if we have now come to sort of this point where we're betwixt and between a, a transition from one paradigm to the next where the old energy system doesn't serve us anymore, the industrial system doesn't serve us anymore and therefore we do need to make these transformational changes and we already have. In fact, there's um, a number of experts have suggested in this meeting that the renewable energy alternatives are actually now cost competitive. So now it's really about scaling these opportunities and distributing energy. How can we actually make that leap into this new climate energy future What's necessary? How does our agricultural system and our, our focus now on food, actually, as part of the climate narrative, feed into this? Thank you very much indeed. I want to align very much with what you're saying. It's so important that, as human beings, we recognize we have to live with what we have and grow through it to ensure that as we accompany it in coming years and decades that we make it better for everybody. What do I mean by that? It's a world with changing climate. It's a world where there is pressure on natural resources. It's a world where 
governance is challenged. That's our world. We're not going to somehow stop it all and say, can we go back, reverse, can we press the backwards button on the, on the player? No, that's what we have. So instead, what we need to do is to group together, recognizing that humans are best when they're working together. They're less good when they work individually and apply our collective brains to reimagining the future with the right mindsets, the right ways of thinking and working that are going to enable us to have the future we want. It will require some transformation. If we approach issues as though they are the result of the interaction of lots of systems, there is a property that can come in systems which is utterly transformative, which is the emergence of new ways of thought and action that exists from time to time. And we've seen it so much happening, lots of emergence as a result of digitalization of our lives, well, there is more still to come. So we need to be aware that transformation will occur. We do need to put in place one massive safeguard. I told you at the beginning that the sustainable development agenda is about people at the center, leaving no one behind. That means that we need to recognize, all of us, that action must be taken to ensure that all the transformations that are going to happen in the future are just, are fair, are respectful of people's rights and pay attention to their basic needs being properly fulfilled. It will not work if the future is just something that's captured by a small group of elites who've got wealth, who then somehow try to insulate themselves from the rest of humanity. And that recognition of the need for all to be able to be participating and to be able to have a chance of at least negotiating benefits, even if they can't benefit equally, is an absolute prerequisite. And that's a challenging one in the current political climate, but it's one that is key to the future. We see it in health, we see it in water, in sanitation, and perhaps we see it most acutely when it comes to food and agriculture. When you were talking about mindset, yes. you know, really paradigms shift when you get yeah. to the core values of yes. a community and you get to the heart of one's moral state, mindset. Yes. At the Global Climate Action Summit, I was really impressed by Anand from the Mahinda Group when he was announcing his transformational commitment to, to become climate neutral, I think by 2020. Yeah. He said what motivated him was love. You know, it wasn't that it's a forced morality, it's not a sense of obligation, it just was a, a feeling, a sense of connectedness to not only the opportunities, but also that he's coming from a perspective of solving people's problems from the ground up. And then also tonight, suggesting that climate change affects everyone. He himself said he lives in Mumbai, which would be underwater if the climate scenario of 1.5 degrees Celsius increase plays out in reality. And so if a plane crashes, I love this, this thought, if a plane crashes, 
You're no safer in first class than you are in economy. There is no escaping the climate crisis, and there is also an opportunity for all to be involved in the solution. And this brings me to my next question about how each of these 7.7 billion people can take individual action, evaluate their own situation, and become involved in being the solution. We have, as I told you, the Agenda for Sustainable Development with its 17 goals. We have a series of principles around which it was built. But what was in the minds of the extraordinary people, really tens of thousands of them, who were involved in the development of this plan with its focus on people and the planet? Answer, it was a commitment to and a respect for humanity, the human, than what each of us actually represents. And that is love. Now, when I mention to people that I think that love is behind this plan for the future, they will look at me occasionally quizzically and say, well, what do you really mean? And I say it's wanting the best for other citizens, other people, in our world, both those who are on the planet and those who are yet to arrive. And that willingness to want the best, that willingness to trust in the capacity of humans to find the forward pathway is at the heart of everything that is inside this new mindset. I have a little code for it. I'll let you into my secret. There are 17 SDGs. I say the 18th SDG is the Sustainable Development Goal about love and joy. Because without love and without a feeling of joy and pleasure about interacting with other humans, achieving the remarkable ambitions of the 2030 Agenda is going to be not straightforward. So without necessarily over exaggerating its importance, I'd just like to state here that a love of people, of places, and of our planet, and a respect for people, for places, and our planet that is born out of that love is at the centre of the new mindset and the imagining the future. And just to really put the cap on it. If I am in a room with a thousand people and we're talking about the future, I can guarantee to you that more than 99% of the people in that room are motivated by a sense of love for the person, for the place and for the planet. They may not express it in the same way, but fundamentally humans actually believe in supporting each other and they do not believe in exploiting, undermining, hurting or in any other way doing bad to each other. You see, we don't own the planet. It's not ours. I, I own nothing. Well, we're part of the life force. I'm, we're part of the yes, natural world. I'm this part of important. it I'm, and I'm connected to the nature in our planet and need to be better connected. Right. But I'm not an owner. 
That's right. Simply looking after it. Well, this is what Jacinda was saying, the uh, Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. She really spoke to our need to think of ourselves again as stewards, yep. guardians of this world in which we live, in which every breath of air we take, every morsel of food we eat. So let me just focus on food for yeah. a second, because this is super interesting. There are features of the food that many of us eat at the moment, which are not so good. There are aspects of our diet that, according to the best science, actually are shortening our lives. And the figures are a bit frightening. It seems that diet is responsible for a big chunk of the deaths in all parts of the world. It's not just the wealthy world. And that means that we should perhaps look generally at our diet and try to ask ourselves, are we really loving and respecting our bodies with what we're putting into them? There are features of the food production systems that are not so good for soil, that are not looking after the water supplies that we have, and that are perhaps damaging biodiversity. Right. That doesn't mean that we can't reverse these problems, but we do have to put our minds to them and to actually factor them in. There are features of our food systems that are actually contributing to climate change. They release a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. And perhaps most important, there are two and a half billion people in our world who earn their livelihoods on the production of, or the processing of, or the distribution of food. Some of those people are the poorest people in our world. They are farmers who are really struggling to produce enough food to feed their families. And it's getting more and more difficult if they're being affected by climate change. And so the production side is not quite right. And we have, in some countries, farmers going bankrupt, even committing suicide. So I'm one of these people who says that we might as well recognize that our food systems, as we call them, need a bit of attention and that that requires farmers, food companies, bigger businesses, supermarkets, environmental scientists, climate scientists, civil society organizations, teachers and universities, really to come together and look at food systems with the attention they deserve. Because all 7.7 .7 billion people in our world need to eat, and therefore the future of food systems is one of these 7.7 .7 billion people right. challenges and it's one that's resolvable. We're just in this year's Davos World Economic Forum, we're looking at some new evidence that's come available on diets, some new evidence that's come available on the importance of nature for the future, some new evidence that's come available on the problems facing farmers around the world. And so this is one of these big challenges that I would like to be discussed and the subject of dialogue everywhere. It's not just a problem for one or two. But we have to keep the farmers on the inside of the tent.
That's it's no right. good if these decisions are made without these two good and a half point. billion people who depend on it. And that includes recognising the absolute importance of livestock in so many societies. There's no blanket prescriptions on the future of food. It actually is a local issue that needs to be worked out everywhere. It really should involve everybody. And then, just, just jumping to the bigger theme of our conversation, imagining the future, my imagining the future is recognising that issues like the future of our planet, climate and accompanying climate change and learning to live with it and trying to prevent it getting too extreme, the future of food, how we can access water, the water we need for our lives, air and trying to deal with pollution. These are problems for everyone. They're not just problems for a small select few to somehow solve to suit their own interests. And it's that universalization of the future, that total participation and ownership in a spirit of love and mutual respect that I believe represents the beginnings of this kind of imagination that you talked about at the beginning. And I should say that right before you, I interviewed Mr. Zhao from, as a Secretary General of the ITU. His true passion mm. is to connect then that other 50% of the who planet who are not yet connected. So mm. they can't be part of the conversation unless yes. they're connected. And yet we have the technology. We just need the political and corporate will to then see the value proposition beyond perhaps economics up front to involve then this other half of the Well, the value proposition is in the conversation. this one of leaving no one behind right. as a central feature of what the future's got to look like. Tricky for many people, this kind of talk sounds obviously a trifle unrealistic, perhaps utopian, bit out of kilter with current political behavior. But I think that the general sense of fractured global politics and architecture that I've heard a little bit while I've been here at this World Economic Forum meeting, it's not an absolute situation. We're not in a situation where international politics and working together for a collective future is somehow impossible forever just we've got some struggles at the moment for this issue that, that we have talked a bit before. Uh, can you be a patriot for your own community, your own ethnic group, your own nation, your own region on the one hand, and at the same time, can you be a global citizen? Yes, if you believe that everybody should have a chance to benefit from all the opportunities that are available. No, if you believe that somehow, because you belong to a particular geography, ethnicity, sex, that somehow you have an entitlement to more than others. And that, working that through is something that's happening right now in many settings, and it's tricky, but it's part of working for the future. You know, and this just calls to mind as a closing thought, um, Yuval Harari and his book Sapiens, yes. where he speaks of the ability of Homo sapiens mm. as a species of which we are a part to essentially outcompete the other Homo species that were living at the time 
of, of our existence at the beginning. You said that some of the characteristics or features of our ability to survive and outperform were that we would allow into our inner familiar circle foreign groups. And by doing so, we integrated new ideas, um, new thoughts and perspectives into our common problems. And for this came up with truly original, innovative solutions. And so interesting is that at the very beginning of our species sort of evolution, one of the driving forces of our ability to then evolve and persist and eventually grow and thrive as a species has been our ability to work together with foreign others and devise new tools and technologies to thrive in, in the ecosystems in which we live. And I think that's a really fantastic point because that is the value proposition of engaging every citizen on the planet, is that is this belief that everyone has value to offer to solving our global problems. We come with that mindset, we come with a spirit of love and compassion and consideration and inclusivity. Then actually, we may come up with solutions that do serve all, as well as the planet on which we belong, of which now, we should be guardians. I hear you so carefully, and I want to offer one other little additional input. If you're going to work for the future, a future in which the benefits can truly reach everybody and can create an earth that is generative, which means that it is capable of renewing its resources in a way that will last for as long as humans would like it to, we need a way of thought and action that helps us. One of the approaches that is terribly useful is, as I've implied, systems thinking, which is a recognition that everything is interdependent. But there's one other extra feature that I'd like to add as my last comment, and that is living systems in which there is life whether it is human life, animal life, plant life, insect life, microorganism life, have a very special characteristic. They are capable of transforming and evolving in ways that are not always possible to predict. But they can be encouraged to transform in ways that are beneficial if we respect them and work with them. The living systems approach to conceiving the future and working for the future is where I am working all the time now. It means connecting. It means being open. It means recognizing that things can be messy and unpredictable, but it means believing in the potential of a really positive future for everybody. And so my last remark to you is do encourage people to join us in discovering the potential impact of living systems. And if they want, we will help to mentor them through our little organization 4SD, which doesn't have a huge, massive organization behind it, but believes in the cascading of good ideas 
and when they are good, they will be borrowed and used by hundreds, thousands, millions, and they are the way of the future. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast, where we're committed to spotlighting intuitive vision, nature-inspired knowledge, and native wisdom in our world. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. There, we have a growing portfolio of podcasts with world leaders on nature, sustainability, climate, and tech for good. Thank you for awakening natural intelligence in the world. Have a beautiful day.